Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The doomsday clock is as close to midnight as it's ever been. We'll discuss the threats we face with the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. There's a new film series at the Film Center of the Art Institute. We'll find out about Apocalypse Then, the Vietnam War on film, and on Weekend Passport, a live sample from the Lyrics production of Turandot. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. In 1945, a group of Manhattan Project scientists wanted to address the implications of their work. They founded the publication The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which is located right here in High Park. Shortly after the founding of the Bulletin, they came up with the enduring idea of a doomsday clock. Yesterday, the Bulletin moved the hands of the doomsday clock as close as they've ever been to midnight. With me to discuss why it's two minutes to midnight is Rachel Bronson, executive director and publisher of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Nice to see you. Hi, nice to be here. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the bulletin and the history of the clock there. I was uh, referencing it. It is uh, uh, 1947 is a long time to have a clock. It has certainly become an enduring symbol. Yeah, absolutely. So we were founded, as you said, in 1945 by Manhattan Project scientists who created a six-page black-and-white bulletin called then the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists of Chicago. And it was it, it was first published right after uh, the use of the atomic bomb. And by November, just a few months after the use, this bulletin came out to engage the public to make sure that they knew that the world as we knew it had changed, the weapons that we knew had changed, science was moving incredibly quickly, and we needed full public engagement to build the policies necessary to keep us all safe. And so this bulletin published for two years, and in 1947, the year you referenced, they decided to turn it into a magazine. And this magazine, you know, was the kind of time of time and life magazine, and every magazine worth their salt had a great cover. So one of the physicists, uh, Alexander Langsdorff, reached out to his wife, Martil, who is an icon in, in Hyde Park and here in Chicago in terms of a, being a great oil landscape painter, to create the first cover. And she created the clock. And if you go back to the first cover of our first magazine, there it is. And the reason she did was she was looking for something that brought together the scientific advancement, especially around uh, nuclear energy but nuclear weapons, and um, the urgency of addressing it. So she created a clock, and she created this clock, and she set it at seven minutes to midnight. And there's two reasons for that. One, in interviews, she said it was because it was pleasing to her eye, so we're kind of stuck (laughs) with the seven minutes from the start, but it was also because that seven minutes should suggest real urgency. And two years later, the editor moved to the clock, and that was the beginning of taking a static picture and making it dynamic. You know, I remember at the end of the Cold War, I think everybody felt so much relief that a lot of the pressures of doom and nuclear uh, proliferation are going to be better. And the clock itself moved way back to 15 minutes to midnight or something like that. 
Um, we all thought it was going to go good. And yeah. now here we are. It just keeps getting closer and closer. Now we're at two. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the closest it's ever been to midnight. The last time it was at two was in 1953, which is at the height of the, or the beginning of the height of the Cold War. Um, and so to move it back to that is very sobering. And the board was very cautious when we did that because we knew that that was the message that we were sending. So what happened is at the end of the Cold War, you're exactly right. In fact, it moved as far back as 17 minutes to midnight even after um, in, in response to the end of the Cold War, but also very important arms control agreements that the U.S. and then Russia were um, putting into place that really it was it was at a time when leaders of the world kind of realized that nuclear weapons not only were would threaten an adversary but had real risk in terms of threatening themselves as well as a lot of, as well as everyone else and so we kind of really stepped back and what's been happening since then is a couple of things one is a real deterioration as we know in US Russian relations still US and Russia maintain 95% of all nuclear weapons but also as we know uh, new countries are pursuing them in ways that haven't been, we haven't found ways to stop. I was watching the live stream of the announcement yesterday that you were moving the hands to two minutes to midnight, and uh, I was struck by uh, how well contemplated the decision is. You have a board, you guys go at it, and you consider not just nuclear weapons but other things that are out there, climate change. There's a, there's a host of things that m- make you move the hands. That's right. And so – Basically, we ask ourselves two important questions every year. So when we come together, we ask ourselves, is the future of mankind safer or at greater risk this year than it was last year when we made this decision? And two, are we safer or at greater risk compared to the 70 years we've been asking that question, right? So we think about it in the moment and within the historic content context. And so... Up until uh, the you know the last ten fifteen years, the, the way we would answer that question was looking predominantly at nuclear weapons. In two thousand and seven, we added climate change. Right, apples and oranges, very different issues. But the board felt that they couldn't answer that question. Those two questions: is the future of humanity safe or greater risk? Without looking at climate change. And if you go back to our founding, what, we, what our founders were focused on was the advancement of science, what, was, what one called the Pandora's box of modern science, like, that it was going to move so fast. And there were key issues, technological issues we needed to grapple with and build policies around to keep us safe. So we look at nuclear issues. We look at climate. But we also look at disrupt, emerging or disruptive technologies. Those technologies, whether it's CRISPR or um, cyber or uh, a, a slew artificial intelligence, they haven't moved the clock, but we think about them and talk about them and try to understand positive and negative trends in those fields. But climate change and nuclear issues do move the clock. And this year, the move was mostly rested on what was happening in the nuclear space. I'm talking with Rachel Bronson, executive director and publisher of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. They held a press conference yesterday and moved the hands of the doomsday clock to two minutes to midnight, close as it's ever been. What's going on in the nuclear realm that is moving the hands? So if it, on our on – our, uh on our website, we have the statement. And if, if, if folks are interested, they should go to thebulletin.org and, and read the statement because it's in there. It's a number of things. You can, you can point to discrete, discrete kinds of investments, um, such as 
the investments made by the Chinese, the investments being made by the Indians and the Pakistanis, um, and uh, to to really invest in nuclear weapons. And the Chinese are moving very fast, and, uh, and South Asians are moving very quickly. Of course, we factored in what was happening between North Korea and the United States, but really the advancement of North Korea's uh, program and their seeming desire to make that central to their uh, their military strategy. So we looked at all that. In Russia, we are very concerned about the fact that the Russians continue to use nu- to use nuclear weapons as part of their military planning. They plan to escalate to nuclear use so that they can de-escalate a conflict, something that the U.S. is very concerned with. So we looked at all that. But then what we added to it is also what's going on in the United States, of course. Um, in the United States, we're very concerned that our allies have no w- sense of knowing how we're thinking about our nuclear weapons. The president, in particular, has been very casual and cavalier. We've gotten into this ridiculous conversation of whose button is bigger than the others, a real like looseness and lack of seriousness, again, uh, that we worry will lead to the conditions that will cause serious miscalculations. Also, and we can certainly get to this, uh, we're expecting huge new investments uh, to be made in our nuclear arsenals beyond which we think are necessary to keep us safe. In watching the press conference yesterday, I was struck by the factor that the the nuclear posture view, which the Trump administration is going to come out with, uh, soon, next month, is uh, there was a draft leaked and people are talking about it. And that seemed to be a, a factor. It seemed to be putting in on paper some of the ideas about nuclear weapons, which are uh, which are doomsday scary because he would uh, – the Trump administration seems to think that it's uh, – there are a series of ways to retaliate to non-nuclear threats with nuclear weapons. And that is – that's not normally the game plan. Yeah, a- absolutely. And uh, you had a great program on it. Uh, I think it was just last week talking about it and it was spot on. Um, there is this leaked draft. It was leaked to the Huff Post, and we don't know whether that's what the final will be. Obviously, that leak has caused real consternation and debate. But we referenced it because it was an example of the kinds of trends that we've been seeing and uh, what it looks like when you enter an arms race Uh, as I think we are entering with the Russians again, which is each side responds to what the other is doing um, as a kind of natural response. And it just leads to a a spiral in the the direction in terms of investments and strategies that make everybody less safe. So, for example, in the nuclear posture review, the coming nuclear posture review that the administration is going to put out, we're anticipating a broadening of rather than a narrowing, a broadening of, of things that might happen that would cause the U.S. to use nuclear weapons. So in there, at least in the leaked draft, it said, we'll never use nu- nuclear weapons first unless absolutely necessary. And so, you know, that kind of made analysts jerk back and, well, what does that mean? And And so then there's this kind of long discussion about the kinds of attacks on infrastructure that might justify a U.S. response. So you can imagine a massive cyber attack, for example, that would take out um, infrastructure take out uh, in the United States that might justify a response. And so you, we should be asking ourselves, well, what happens if an adversary attacks us that way? Are we prepared for that? And what's the best response? And I would certainly argue and others that a nuclear response is Absolutely not the right response because when it comes to cyber, A, you often can't figure out who it is, but B, we're better at cyber than most. So we want to keep it in the 
cyber realm. We don't want to move it to nuclear where others have significant assets that can actually do catastrophic harm. You know, it's um, so strange that once again, the end of the Cold War, things were supposed to ratchet down. And instead, you mentioned we're, we're spending a lot of money on nuclear weapons. And this started in the Obama administration. The Obama administration was going to revamp our nuclear weapons. Um, and th- there's just a ton of decisions to be made out there about what our nuclear future is. And I'm not sure people are really focused on those. Yeah, so that that's a really great point because there's – a lot of people out there are saying, OK, well, you just set the doomsday clock at two minutes to midnight. So what do we – what do we do? Why are you telling us this? What do we actually do about it? Actually, now is the time to get reengaged in, um, in, in these issues. There's a great exhibit at the Museum of Science and Industry that we help support called Turn Back the Clock that you, is a great starting place. Our, our site is a great place. There's a lot of good sites out there. But the reason is, is these debates are coming. And so if this nuclear, this nuclear posture review actually kind of lays out where we're going, but We've got some big taxpayer dollars uh, questions to answer. Right now, we expect that the new investments in our nuclear arsenal will be $1.25 trillion over 30 years. Now, the Defense Department is going to say, look, as a percentage of our defense spending, it's less than it was under the Cold War, so don't worry about it. It's actually, it seems like a lot, but not really. But if you actually look at it, what what, what the numbers say is about... Two-thirds of that is necessary just to keep our nuclear weapons safe and secure. But the last one-third of it, about $400 billion, is going to be used to reconstruct our entire nuclear fleet. So the question is, is that do we need to do that? Do we need to build new systems? What are the threats out there? And there's a huge debate, and it's just going to start now. So if you're ever going to get involved in these issues, now is a great time to start following it because the debate is about to take off. It would seem like if you were trying to use nuclear weapons as a deterrent, you would need a smaller investment than if you were trying to use them to respond to cyber attacks and everything else. Right. And so, you know, here's what the nuclear posture review is going to say is the Russians are investing heavily in tactical nuclear weapons. So we think they're going to use them. And so we need to be able to meet them at a lower yield than what we currently have. And we have to be more flexible in our use of nuclear weapons so that we can counter where the Russians are going. And the question to ask is, is that true? Or are there other ways to counter a Russian nuclear low-yield attack that doesn't invest in nuclear and keeps us in the conventional realm where actually we're stronger? Do you think you could move the clock any closer next year? Well, we're at two minutes to midnight. You don't have a lot of room to move. (laughs) That's right. And we'd really (laughs) rather not. So that's a question that we are hoping that we don't have to face. And uh, what what our goal is, is to be moving it in the other direction. This is we take no pleasure in moving it in this direction. We have two minutes. And so, yes, of course, we can move it closer to midnight. But we'd really rather not contemplate it. And it would be great to hold it where it is. And, of course, even better to move it back. Um, you know, Rachel, I've been – I'm hooked up with the bulletin. I get the little emails in the in the email, and I'm really enjoying the site more and more. The, the material moves a lot. There's a lot going on at your website these days. Well, thank you. There's a lot going on in, in these issues, and it's – it's a time people are concerned, they're engaging, and um, and so we try our best 
to respond. And we really do see our role in this is to provide reliable information that's not hysterical, but it's sober and presents the debates so that people can catch up because it's hard. This is hard material. It's technical. And there's a lot of different moving parts. But thank you for reading it. Appreciate it. Thebulletin.org. Everybody should be reading it. And it's right here in High Park. Thanks a lot for joining us. Rachel Branson, executive director and publisher of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. They moved the hands of the doomsday clock yesterday to two minutes to midnight. Thanks for talking with us. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll have our film contributor Milos Stalik, and we'll talk about a new film series, Apocalypse Then, The Vietnam War on Film. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our film contributor, Milos Stalik from Facets. Hey, Milos, nice to see you. Hey, Jerome. Great to be here. Uh, You know, you interviewed Ken Burns for his uh, Vietnam War series, and uh, the series made a big splash. And the thing people kept saying to me about it was, I didn't know all this. I didn't get this. I didn't really understand what was going on. Um, and now we have an opportunity to to learn more about Vietnam. Well, it's it's shocking, you know, that so many years. I guess it's not shocking because we're still learning stuff about World War One, World War Two, <laughs> which we also don't know. But Vietnam, which continues to be this very deep wound on the American psyche, I would say, and still continues to be, I think, always demands revisiting. And film is one way that we can really, really do this. The Gene Siskel Film Center has a new film series, Apocalypse Then, The Vietnam War on Film. It was put together by Nora Ainsley Taylor, and she is South and Southeast Asian art professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, tell us, you know, how did you decide to do a film series on uh, the Vietnam War? How did you, how did this cook up in your mind? Well, uh, I am a Vietnam specialist. My area of expertise is Vietnamese art, and I also am a film buff. So uh, because uh, we at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago collaborate with uh, the Gene Siskel Film Center to program films um, that are also classes, I thought with the 50th anniversary of the Tet Offensive coming up that this was a good opportunity to show 
the Vietnam War and film as a class and also to bring students together with the public and have a discussion about the Vietnam War. So this is quite an ambitious thing. You're showing, uh, gosh, how many films? A, over a dozen. And you are lecturing after every one of them on, on Tuesdays. Yes. So that's a handful of lecturing. Well, I won't be lecturing for much for only the period of time between the film and the end of the class. So it's a three-hour class. But it seems like as many films as have been made about Vietnam, there are still gaps. It's been very difficult for film to really represent all sides of the experience. So let's say the depth and contradictions of the experience. Wouldn't you say so? Of course. Yeah. Uh, and one thing I would have wanted to do more, which is to show the Vietnamese perspective on the war. And so we're not showing, unfortunately, films other than one film, but not a lot of films made by Vietnamese filmmakers. But I put those on reserve in DVD format at the library. But um, that's another side. But we'll never be able to show both sides, of course. So how do you see the Vietnam films evolving from the very early days from Pierre Schoendorfer, that's your first film, 317th Platoon, which speaks about the French experience in Indochina, and Pierre Schoendorfer was kind of a militarist, actually. Uh, but so from that point on, I mean, the background of Vietnam going forwards, how do you see cinema, American cinema, representing Vietnam? Well, I actually start with Indochine because I really want to talk about colonialism, where everything started in a way because this film series is also about history mm -hmm. so I wanted to capture the history not just the history of cinema but the history of the Vietnam conflict the history of Vietnam and 20th century Vietnam so it has to start with colonialism and Indochine is a French film with Catherine yes. Deneuve from the 90s and incidentally that was the first uh, foreign film to be shot in Vietnam after the war so that's another reason to show it because scenes, part of it was shot in Malaysia, but uh, a big chunk was also shot in Vietnam. And then, of course, I had to do Dien Bien Phu, and Pierre Schoendorfer did a film on Dien Bien Phu, a I documentary. See, yeah. But this one is a different take on, on that. And then I move up in time and do Cambodia as well. But as far as the film is concerned, I think the first films made by Americans, like Coming Home or... Deer Hunter were about the vets coming back and that experience and not really about what was going on in Vietnam. And it isn't until later that that filmmakers tackled what was really going on in Vietnam. And still, I don't think any filmmaker has really tackled what is going on in Vietnam. Uh, you're showing some of the films that people will know, like uh, The Killing Fields and uh, Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now was a real big f film, but it could have been kind of about any war. It was it yeah. was a it was a it was kind of an great war is craziness film. That's why I like it so much. Actually, <laughs> it's one of my favorite films of, of all time. Partly because it's so cinematic. But also it speaks about the human psyche and uh, how one quickly degenerates in, in times of war. And it could be any war. It could be All is Quiet on the Western Front. It could be any of the films about war and its effect on soldiers. You know, we're living in an era where people are, you know, we were just having a conversation about talking about using nuclear weapons again. There seems to be a lot of verbiage out there about war, you know, we can have one and it's not that bad. Uh, but these, 
um, these are the kind of films that remind you. And Milos, you just did a, uh, I just did a, win- a, a talk back at your at, at facets yeah, about Vietnam. Yeah, we did Winter Soldier, which was a pretty amazing experience, which was the testimonies of the returning Vietnam vets in 1971 in Detroit talking about their experience, which of course included war crimes. And this was really the first exposure of that later put into the congressional record. Uh, and and it's it, from that experience, it, it really showed me just how deeply unsolved and unreconciled this country still still really is about Vietnam. And a lot of the discussion also taking extrapolating the Vietnam experience unlearned, unlearned from, and applied to subsequent wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, elsewhere, because the lessons of Vietnam, which are considerable and huge, I think have not really filtered filtered down. Well, I'm interested in, of course, how film is made and great art is also made. The 60s, 70s are a period of fantastic photos, uh, films, artworks, and we think of the war, actually a lot of Vietnamese think of the war as one that was from the air by Americans, but from the ground, uh, the Vietnamese, and uh, after all of these films were made, they had such a big impact that, in fact, during the Iraq War, uh, photographers were not allowed to film, and people saw that as a kind of from-the-air bombs dropping, and nobody saw any civilians. And so these films actually show people in combat what was tra- happening on the ground, and I think that's really Yeah, the important. access was much greater. Yeah. It was much more restricted. Yeah. So the, the Iraq War became like a video game. Yeah, and it wasn't human. Right. And what filmmakers do is bring a human side to war, which is both disturbing but also powerful. We're talking with Nora Annesley Taylor, and she's with the School of the Art Institute, and her film series at the Film Center is Apocalypse Then, Vietnam War on Film. It starts here on uh, January 27th and runs all the way to May 8th, and uh, there's over a dozen films. She's lecturing on Tuesdays about them. And they're showing twice in a week. Um, it's uh, it's kind of a monumental thing. And I, I think um, when you get down to some of the problems that um, people, you know, the the, the Ken Burns uh, documentary seemed to resonate so much here. I know you were in uh, Vietnam at the time it was showing, and people in Vietnam were watching the Ken Burns thing too? Yeah, I happen to have been in Vietnam. I go often. I lived there in the 90s, but I was there not last October. And I know that uh, there are Vietnamese subtitles to the documentary. And so when I was there, I had just finished watching it myself. And all my friends said they had watched it with the Vietnamese subtitles. And they were fascinated by it because there was a lot of information they didn't know that was shown. They were they didn't have access to a lot of the information about the war themselves. So on on um, you know may not be known to unknown to a lot of Americans who may have thought that the Vietnamese had all these secret information about the war. They did not. You know, the, American, the Vietnamese public didn't know, like the American public didn't know, about what was going on. Well, and one of the great things about the uh, Ken Burns documentary is that there's really remarkable archival footage that he was able to get because he spent so much time and, of course, had a lot of resources to try to find that footage and assemble it and put it together. So that and, and seeing sometimes, I think, which was remarkable, the 
both sides of the perspective, the same battle from the, the North Vietnamese side versus the American side and how those were represented and then talked about and what that experience was for the participants on both sides because wars are not linear, right? Yeah. No, I think that that documentary was fantastic for showing archival footage. Um, you're showing several documentaries as the, um, the series moves on. Um, one of them is Hearts and Minds from 1974, and I'm sure a lot of people don't know about this film, but it was a big deal. Oh, at the time. it was a big deal, yeah, because it was the first documentary that really tried to reveal some of the uh, wrongdoings on the part of the American military. Um, you know, we do have a clip from the film. Daniel Ellsberg is in the film, and here he is kind of getting to the crux of things. Basically, we didn't want to acknowledge the scale of our involvement there. We didn't want to realize that it was our war because that would have been to say that every casualty on both sides was a casualty caused by our policy. The question used to be, might it be possible that we were on the wrong side in the Vietnamese war? But we weren't on the wrong side. We are the wrong side. That's a tough thing to keep digesting. I mean, I was, I was surprised when uh, McNamara came out with his book and said, I made a mistake. And everybody, you know, it was a big sensation to hear the, the defense secretary, ex-defense secretary say, I made a mistake. But, um, you know, that, it's, it was a pretty big mistake. Yeah. And I don't know why it keeps getting repeated as a mistake as if it's something new. As you can tell, they knew yep. right from the start that it was a mistake. <laughs> you know, if there's one masterpiece for me anyway in this series which most people don't know it's the film on March 20th The Missing Picture by Rithi Pan mm. who is an amazing Cambodian filmmaker who lives mostly in, in, in France and this is his personal story which I think he found an incredibly creative way to represent by creating these puppets. Uh, in a, they're little clay little figurines figures, yeah. and they're, it's incredible because it shows so it says so much. Those clay figurines are like a metaphor for the dehumanization of mm. beings or how they just are stiff figures and they endure these uh, events. And what the film does is it brings you very close to what happens to civilians uh, in case of a war because, of course, he was a child. His parents were lost in the, in the war. I mean, he went through years of starvation, I mean, under just the most horrific circumstances. And by abstracting it, it really comes at you as this really, really powerful way because wars should not be just seen through the eyes of generals or filmmakers who represent generals. I mean, so, and this really gets at this, the human substance of it. Well, if there's anything that people, I want people to get uh, out of this series is to show the tragedy of war, but also the human side, that there are personal testimonies. There are creative takes on it. There's also an aftermath uh, to war. So many of the films actually take place afterwards. There are people who were against the war. So I have a documentary on called Far From Vietnam, actually away from Vietnam, but pr the protest movements in France and elsewhere. Um, there's uh, so... You know, one of the films I've seen is Don't Think I've Forgotten Cambodia's Lost Rock and Roll, which I saw a few years ago, which details these uh, Cambodian musicians who were playing rock and roll music and doing their kind of takes on 
uh, rock and roll, and it, they were really good musicians, really, and they were pretty popular, and they all got decimated. I mean, when you think, yeah. when you when you say to yourself, "Well, okay, the Khmer Rouge went in and wiped out the the artistic class," I mean, but you don't know anybody, and this tells you who it was. I know it's real tragic situation with the arts in Cambodia, and they're only now recovering from. 20 years, 30, 40 years ago, uh, what happened to their country. Um, do you have any other thoughts about uh, having lived in Vietnam for so long, um, how, about what they think about this war these days? Well, um, when I lived there in the 90s, I used to think, oh, it's so uh, great. They're not thinking about the war anymore. They've moved on. And then when I mentioned that to Vietnamese friends, they laughed at me. Go, how can we forget? We, don't, we haven't forgotten the war. You know, every day goes by, we still remember some, some family member died or they remember what they had to do during the war to survive. But they do move on. And uh, so now, of course, there's, I think, half the country is under 30, has no memory of the war. And most of the time they think Americans are still uh, busy worrying about the war, but they have moved on. But still, they remember and their country remembers there's still fields where rice can't grow because of Agent Orange. There are children born with birth defects because of Agent Orange. So they're still scarred by the war, but they nonetheless have a resilience to become rich and have businesses and uh, go on with their life. Well, I hope some people get out and see some of the films in your film series, Apocalypse Then, The Vietnam War on Film. It's at the Gene Siskel Film Center, January 27th through May 8th. And uh, Nora Annesley Taylor is professor of South and Southeast Asian, uh, Asian Art at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. She's the author of Painters in Hanoi, Ethnography of Vietnamese Art. Thanks a lot for joining us, and congratulations on the film series. Thank you. Milos Stalik from Facets, nice seeing you, and have a, have a great time this weekend. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up next is Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. We will take you to the world of opera. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and it's time for Weekend Passport, our look at international things to do on the weekend. With me, back now from Iran, Nari Safavi. And he comes to us on the wings of love. <laughs> he comes to us 
uh, with people not sleeping all night. Uh, <laughs> we, we, this is one of the world's <laughs> great opera arias, and it's one of Nari's favorite operas. Uh, from the land of the sleepless, love-struck people of Iran. <laughs> <laughs> that is I where you've been. with greetings of love and compassion for everybody in Chicago area. Thank you, Jerome, for welcoming me with this rousing uh, aria of Nessun Dorma uh, and the Turandote uh, uh, opera. Now, tell us about Turandote and its uh, Iranian origins. There is even pronunciation wars about this opera, and it all has to do with if you pronounce it uh, Persian or not. Yeah, exactly. Well, there is actually, you know, there is a whole th thing about Turando or Turandot, but actually the poem that the, that the opera is based upon originally is on, based on a Persian poem by Nizami Ganjavi called Turandot. Turan is the land, uh, in ancient Persian, it meant the lands to the east of Iran, usually referring to Central Asia or China. And uh, Docht in Persian means daughter. daughter. So it literally means daughter of China. And the poem that Nizami wrote uh, in around uh, 1540, I believe, uh, it, based on a series of poems called Half Pekar, Seven Beauties. And he wrote about beauties from all over the world. And he started with China and moved to Russia and moved to uh, Egypt and moved to other ones. And I guess Puccini at some point gets a hold of these poems and decides to write operas about them. And, of course, he never finished the first one, the Turandot. And then later on, other Italian uh, uh, composers got a hold of this and finished it up for him. And the Persian subtext of all of this kind of got lost throughout history. Are you bitter about that, Nari? Is this, everyone knows this is a big Italian opera, and here it is, the roots are Persian, the poetry is Persian. <laughs> what, what, what is going on here? Well, you know, I'm like that Greek, uh, fat Greek guy, you know, uh, uh, wedding guy, who you know, believed everything is from, comes from Greece. I believe it actually came from Persia. Everything came from per Every. Persia. So, <laughs> but, uh, but kidding aside, um, my, own, uh, my own prejudices and, uh, and uh, biases aside, uh, it's actually... Actually, I think this is about a Persian message of universal love. And it's kind of, uh, and it's, I think that's something that's been, uh, you know, we're going to have uh, uh, the privilege of having Janai Brugger talk, uh, who performs the role Leo, who, uh, whose character dies in the middle of the uh, middle of the opera for, for the sake of love. And uh, she, and, and this is all, so there are some very Persian concepts for, of love embedded within all of this. But it's also Roman, and it could be Italian also at the same time. So it's about universal appeal of love. It's not about whether it's Persian or Italian or anything else. And the last performance of the Lyric Opera's production of Turandot is tomorrow night. And exactly. there are uh, still some seats available. And it is a pleasure to have Janai Brugger here, an operatic soprano. She plays the role of Liu. As Nari said, uh, thanks a lot. Nice to meet you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, now, you're from Darien originally? Yes. Yeah. Grew up in Darien. <laughs> Born in Chicago at St. Joseph's Hospital, but grew up in Darien. And you got interested in opera because your mom was an opera fiend. Yes, and she still is. She was an opera fanatic, and at a very young age, I believe at six, you know, she was taking me to see operas and recitals at the Lyric and, and, and all over the city, so. And you've been at the Met lately? 
I have. I was there last year for a good portion of their season, which was fantastic and exciting. And this is your first crack at the lyric where you watched yes. all the operas growing up. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's surreal to be actually on the other side instead of in the audience, but actually on stage. It's, it's a surreal, amazing moment to be in. Do you want to straighten Nari out about anything about this opera? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Do you want to... I was actually very intrigued myself hearing him speak. It's actually, she's going to probably say that Rondel was written in Darien. <laughs> Darien. It all goes back to Darien. Chicago. <laughs> <Hey>. No. <laughs> um, you were nice enough to come and um, perform a piece for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking about it. Nobody really knows what it's like to be an opera singer. I, but I... I thought, well, this must be like um, being a baseball pitcher or something. You got to have like a some kind of thing that, to warm up to this, and some kind of regimen. And you know, are, sure. are we are we making you sing on the day, on your off day or something? Yes. I'm sorry about that. I because I, you got to go tomorrow night. You got to go full bore in front of the people, and that's we're making true. you sing a little bit. I don't know if that's is that good. I don't know anything about that. You know, uh, everybody is different. Um, some people, you know, can can sing every single day and not have any issues with it. Um, I think it just depends on the amount of rest you get and and how you take care of yourself. But for me personally, when I have my days off, I generally tend to rest if I'm in the midst of productions. Um, but I also am a mom. I have an almost five-year-old little boy, so... You know, I don't get as much rest as you would think. Does he get the full bore lullabies, or does he? He, he does, but he he, prefer, he prefers if I don't sing so loud. <laughs> so. Well, he doesn't know what he's missing. No. <laughs> um, well, I, do, sure, let's hear it. Yeah, we let's should, hear, we it. Yeah, hear it. Yeah, yeah. And by well, the way, on piano, we have uh, William Billingham over here, or Double Bill, they call him sometimes, uh, <laughs> who performs regularly at the Lyric Opera. Uh, so he's going to perform on the piano for us. Yes. Uh, this is uh, Liu's third act aria, To Katie Gel Se Cinta. Um, and she's, this is her moment confronting Turandot, um, letting her know that she too will be succumbed by love and will fall for Calaf, Prince Calaf, as she has done herself. Thank you. 
Janai Bruger here in the Jim and K Maybe Performance <laughs> Studio doing one of her arias from the Lyric Opera's production of Turnduct. And uh, boy, that's amazing. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you performed that so well with so much passion. You know, Aww. we were talking about that just a little bit earlier before that before the show. Mm-hmm. But uh, where do you think Leo comes from over here? We, you know, her love expression of love mm-hmm. is the most unselfish one, and she right. does the ultimate sacrifice for love. Right. And she dies for the mission of her beloved, yeah. who loves supposedly somebody else. I know. So. Where do you think she's coming from? Well, I think you know she's been with uh, uh, Timur uh, Kalaf's father for so many years, and as a servant. And over the years, you know, she's fallen in love with Kalaf. She's never mentioned that to him, but she says in the, you know, in the first act that he asks her, you know, why do you care so much and, and, and where did all this come from? And she's like, oh, it's when you smiled at me, you know, so many years ago, and that stuck with her. And I think she's just, um, you know, you don't get much of her backstory at the beginning or throughout the opera, but it's just that devotion she has for Kalaf and, and Timur and, and that family, and um, that she will do whatever she needs to do to, to protect them, especially as we see in the third act at the end where she's face-to-face with one of the most terrifying women (laughs) there and and she's got to confront her. And, uh, you know, she says, this is where my courage comes from. It's, It's from the fact that I can love and you will and you will figure it out eventually. But I have to not be here to do it. Wow. Why, why is this the popular opera that it is? Do you think it's this love uh, thing that is uh, the driving force here? Or is it just really good arias? Oh, gosh. I think it's a combination of both. I mean, the music, it's Puccini. But, and, I, and personally, I think it's his you know, best uh, opera. It's one of my favorites. The music is just so lush and so gorgeous from beginning to end. And it grabs you. There's no real overture at the beginning. You get like three big powerful chords and then the mandarin appears yeah, and hits you right away. hits you you don't get a moment to like you're in it you know yeah. and it's a driving force all the way to the end and it's incredible it's a you know cuz you don't really get that in a lot of other operas. Um, so I think the music is a huge one. Many people relate to it. You know, Nessun Dorma. Even if you've never seen an opera, you've heard it somewhere. Yeah. Um, and, and Pavarotti, of course, was a genius at that. Um, uh, and I also feel the storyline. The storyline is debatable. You know, everybody has their, their own take on it. But the character... Um, That's part of the fun. It's part of the fun. You know, you come up with your own... Uh, you know, opinion about it, um, how realistic it is or not. But I think it's just, it's just like a movie in a way. It's such a attention grabbing from the beginning. Do you get the feeling like audiences are satisfied by this opera in a way that others aren't? Ooh, you know, a couple of people I've talked to since this one, um, yes and no, uh, mostly because of what happens to you at the end and, yeah. and what happens right after that. <laughs> There's some, you know, nice debates going on about that. But I think with any opera, there's so many out there that, you know, people come because they want to escape reality for a couple hours. And you get everything from political to religion to love to death. And I mean, everything, all these topics that, you know, capture us as a as a society. So. Um, what are you going to do next? Oh, next. I have a recital next week at my alma mater in Ann Arbor, Michigan, University of Michigan with Martin Katz at the piano. Wow. Um, and the next big opera role for me will be Susanna at Palm Beach Opera. Are you going to come back to the lyrics sometime? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I do hope so. 
Well, it's been great to have you here. Janai Bruger is an operatic soprano. She's playing the role of Liu at the Lyric Opera's production of Turandot, and it is the last production tomorrow night. Yeah. And you and you blew your voice here tonight for the radio <laughs> audience. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Is there like a duration you can sing before it? it, it hurt? It's it's like a pitcher, so many pitches. I don't know. No, I just try to break glasses. <laughs> just try to be smart, sing healthily, and, and and rest when I can. And thanks to William Billingham and piano for coming over and playing today. That was beautiful and uh, nice to give the piano a decent workout there. Yeah. Uh, Nari Safavi is our friend on Weekend Passport. It's great to have you back from Iran. It's a privilege to be here. It's Iran, to be back. Uh, there, there's nuts back at our office that Nari brought directly from uh, Persia. We've got some great pistachios. pistachios. Everybody should come over and have yeah. good Iranian pistachios. Uh, have a great weekend, <laughs> While they <everyone>. last <laughs> for another 30 seconds. <laughs> have a great weekend, everyone. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.